Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Check one, two. Hello? Hey, how's it going? This is my first Zoom, so I've never Zoomed before. Wow, wow. You made it this far? You made it this far into this without Zooming? I'm a virgin to the Zoom. (laughs) That's Jerry DeJesus. He's the executive chef and co-owner of a restaurant in Westchester County, New York, the North End Tavern. We spoke on June 4th of 2020. So I guess, Jerry, the first thing I wanted to ask you, um, I guess, let's go back to the beginning, if, if you will. I guess, what was, your, what was your first reaction to the virus when it was making news locally? You know, I mean, I was a little worried about it, but I, I didn't quite understand it. I mean, I knew things were going on in Europe and Asia, but I didn't really hear about it. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. And uh, sure enough, it was bad. Yeah. So it sounds like just from the way you're saying it, it's like maybe you underestimated it at the beginning and your, your opinions changed as time went on. I definitely did. I mean, I definitely underestimated it. Shell is loyal and strong. People here everywhere. It's a beautiful thing. That too is Jerry. In videos he posted from the North End Tavern to Instagram on Friday, March 13th, 2020. As you can hear, the place was jumping. New Row, New Row is strong and loyal. North End Tavern. It's a beautiful thing to see our loyal customers come out and support. Come on in, North End Tavern. Friday night was a good night. And I remember that because I remember putting it on Instagram. And I was like, wow, Friday night's great. Look at it. We're all excited. And, you know, I was excited. I was like, all right, you know, our customers are loyal. You know, they're not really worried about this at this point. And I was, I mean, I was jumping for joy. I was like, you know what? We're going to make it through this. We're going to kill it. Do you remember where you were on that Friday the 13th? Were you at a bar or restaurant like Jerry's? Possibly. In hindsight, a raucous bar and grill sounds crazy with what we know now about COVID, but remember, words like social distancing and masks were not yet part of the lexicon. I personally remember being in a crowded school auditorium that Thursday the 12th. My oldest daughter's entire grade had a performance, an entire grade's worth of parents, all in one room. We questioned whether it was a good idea, but we were there nonetheless. It wasn't until the following Monday that Governor Andrew Cuomo shut down indoor dining in New York State for what would be the foreseeable future. It was a move that we now see in debates over safety versus economic viability. But then, well, we weren't at the debate stage just yet. Things were moving awfully fast. Two weeks ago, Thursday, I woke up with a terrible headache. And I just kind of couldn't see straight. And a few hours later, I started coughing. I hadn't been in the shop or the factory for a while. I stayed home. I thought it was seasonal allergies. I went to take allergy medicine. And next to the allergy medicine was our family thermometer. And I took my temperature. And I had a fever. It wasn't terribly high. It's about 100, 101. Just enough to be annoying. But I called my husband immediately. He pulled our children out of school immediately. And I notified my staff. That's Ellen Sledge. She owns Penny Lick Ice Cream, which is also located in Westchester County. 
I spoke to her on March 22nd, 2020, nine days after Jerry declared on Instagram that his packed restaurant was a beautiful thing. I called my doctor's practice. It's a very large practice in Yonkers. My doctor called me back immediately and she said, you can't come in. She said, "Um, you sound like you have this. We would call you a presumptive positive case. If you come here, you run the risk of contaminating hundreds of people. So you cannot leave your house. If you need a hospital and you are under respiratory distress, please, nobody in your family go to a hospital. Call this number. They will arrange for safe transport to a hospital that is set up for this. I have three kids, a husband, and a 98-year-old grandmother. And I thought, who did I expose? Sorry. I thought... Who did I expose? It's been a year since COVID first changed our worlds forever. A year since cases were first reported in New York. A year since restaurants were first shut down. A year since schools were first closed. A lot has changed in the past year, while a lot has sort of become the new normal. In this special hot takes on a plate, I'm going back to COVID-19's ground zero here in New York and doing it in a way most lookbacks can't. I have interviews with chefs, restaurateurs, and others connected to the hospitality industry that span the life of COVID, time capsules that reveal the raw emotion of these specific moments. I'm Rob Patron, and this is chapter one of 86, how a global pandemic rocked the world's culinary capital. New York announced its first COVID-19 case on March 1st, 2020. By that point, coronavirus awareness was mounting. We were told to wash our hands and otherwise go about our lives. Schools and businesses, including restaurants, stayed open. But patronage of certain restaurants slowed sooner and quicker than others. I think for most restaurateurs, even though we could all watch the news and see this stuff happening in other countries, there's always in the back of your head that this is not us because it's never yeah. happened here and it hasn't happened yet. And right. I think for a lot of restaurants, it felt very sudden and out of nowhere. But, you know, being in a, in a Chinatown neighborhood, for you, with a lot of reaction from people, racist and xenophobic in the months leading up to this, I'm sure it resonated differently for you. Yeah, absolutely. That's Wilson Tang, owner of Namwa Tea Parlor, the oldest restaurant in Manhattan's Chinatown. Guys, guys, can you please go to your rooms, please? (laughs) I spoke with Wilson on April 13th of 2020. Like so many of us at that time, Wilson was trying to juggle business, in this case, an interview with me, while being at home with his two children. For many of us, that's still our reality. But part of his new COVID reality as an Asian American was very different from mine. It was a complete you know, total other ball game for, for Asian Americans. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, the, the virus was bad enough. Now you have to look, watch your back because of, you know, forget about the, the, the words, which are hurtful in itself. You know, you're, you have to watch your back because someone might like just stab you because you're, they, they think they might catch the virus from you because you're Chinese or Asian American. So like, there was like an added, definitely like an added, uh, level of heightened um, awareness that you have to have. 
I mean, did you see sales dipping before the, the force? Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. Like at the end of January, it's like, Oh, this is really weird. Um, like the, the numbers, like it typically slows, but like we were, we were like, look, we're looking at data. We're like, wow, this is, this is, this is abnormal. And, um, you know, I, I get it. I get it. You know, it started in, it's the, the whole thing started in China and like, I, I can see like why, how people can correlate that, but you know, it, it, it's sad that, that we have to think that way. And, um, you know, it, it's just, um, it's upsetting. And like all the work that we, it feels like, you know, all the trife that like my family had to, like my dad had to go through, you know, being an immigrant and like for, for us to have a better life. And now we're kind of, we got to take a couple of steps back and, you know, and, and, and figure it out. I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, having like two kids of my own, you know, like what, what's their future going to be like? How, how, how should they be thinking? How big, a, when you say a dip in sales, like how big was it leading up to this? Um, like January, I would, February. I would say um, the, the, the weekday traffic was down like close to 40% or more. And then the weekend traffic was down uh, 20, 20 to 30. Actually, as I pause, that was probably mid-February um, when we really started thinking about it because uh, I had a scheduled trip to Japan and, and Danny had a scheduled trip to Italy and we were, we were watching the news and obviously staying very close to it. And um, during that period, we had yet to make a decision whether or not to keep our scheduled trips um, uh, moving forward. A week later, on April 20th, I spoke with Chip Wade, the president of Union Square Hospitality Group. The Danny he just referred to, well, you may have heard of him before. The origins of the company start with Danny Meyer, who is this wonderful leader and a fantastic restaurateur. Yes, that Danny Meyer. Most famously founded Shake Shack, but here in New York, Danny has been a restaurant fixture for decades, with restaurants like Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern, which fall under the Union Square Hospitality Group umbrella. Chip's purview. We had a breakfast at one of our restaurants um, called The Modern, which is inside the Museum of Modern Art. Um, And so one of our guests um, had... Uh, attended a breakfast. Danny also attended the breakfast. And um, I think there was some speculating the morning after of whether or not he had COVID-19 symptoms. It was later confirmed that he did not test positive, but the flurry of the activity and the general nervousness around a patron in one of our restaurants who had moved throughout the entire entire dining room and most likely had interfaced with a handful of our of our staff, um, made our staff, uh, frankly, made Danny somewhat nervous. And so we took the appropriate steps to close the restaurant, um, communicating with our great partners at MoMA, and then completely sanitized all the, the culinary uh, areas as well as the front of the house. It was a significant amount of uh, effort and work And then roughly um, four or five days later, uh, one of our uh, sous chefs inside Union Square Cafe um, had some fever-like symptoms. um, And candidly, uh, again, this was fairly early on, worked during the um, weekend period 
and then quickly and appropriately, a leader in the organization, our, our director of operations, um, on a Monday early sent him home. And so again, this individual was not tested, it was not confirmed, but he had some flu-like symptoms. And so because of that, we took the same steps. We closed our, our restaurant, um, we sent all of our employees home, obviously posted the appropriate signs on the door, and then sanitize the entire uh, restaurant. And, and those two events really accelerated our thinking about the severity of COVID-19, but equally important, I would say, again, the general nervousness that our employees, as well as the guests, were starting to feel about this, um, this disease. On Friday, March 13th, 2020, three days before Governor Cuomo shut down indoor dining, Union Square Hospitality Group announced it was temporarily closing all 19 of its restaurants. The preemptive closures were eye-opening at the time. Remember the rollicking bar and grill you heard from just minutes earlier in this podcast? That was that same Friday. No one had a crystal ball. Our early predictions were pretty bad. At the time, we all thought COVID-19 would take over Manhattan and spread outward. I mean, it made sense. The population density, the office buildings, the subways... Of course, we were wrong. And their show was ground zero. And that's basically what it was. It was ground zero. Uh, felt like we were in a war zone. Twenty-five miles northeast of the fear-mongering happening around Manhattan's Chinatown is where you'll find New Rochelle, a suburban Westchester County city that the man known as Patient Zero Lawrence Garbusse called home. By March 6, 37 of New York's 44 known cases of COVID-19 traced back to Garbusse. A few days later, a mile radius surrounding Garbusse's home and synagogue was under containment. I kind of dreaded going to work every day. I just, I mean, I'd look out the window and I mean, just reporters left and right. Also inside the New Rochelle containment zone, Jerry DeJesus's restaurant, the North End Tavern. You know, I mean, I was a little worried about it, but I, I didn't quite understand it. You know, who would think Ground Zero would be New Rochelle? You know, like you, you hear about stuff like this, and it's usually in a different part of the country. It's usually in a different country. You know, it's nothing ever happens in New Rochelle like this. I didn't know how long it would last. I didn't know if, it, if I mean, the way they said it, it was in the containment zone, where they're going to keep it within. Lower Westchester and knock it out. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. The ripple effects were being felt on the other side of Westchester County by a celebrity chef at his new restaurant. My name is Dale Taldi. I'm the um, chef owner of Goosefeather Restaurant. And that mom and pop ice cream shop owner I introduced you to earlier, Ellen Sledge, who is believed to have the virus. Here she is again on March 22nd of 2020. I was sick for four days. I've been better since. I have not returned to work and my family is still under quarantine. And so I am staying with them until the end of that, which is in another four days. The schools have since then shut down. I had never had a, a test. There's a shortage of tests in Westchester County and um, my doctor's practice and the state hotline uh, said you are young and in good health. And if your symptoms are mild, we simply cannot afford to devote a test to you. That same 24-hour period, um, events started canceling very quickly. We had 
birthday parties, uh, weddings, all scheduled for like the next two weeks and immediately started uh, canceling. Good reason. Um, in the space of the next day, I cut down our staff um, and started to cut down our hours. It felt those, that first weekend felt strange in that it felt like half our customers didn't get it yet. It was a beautiful weekend. And the line to our ice cream store was down the street, which is like irresponsible. But, you know, a week and a half ago, nobody was thinking six foot distance. I caught up with Dale the night of April 15th, 2020. Like all these interviews we spoke over Zoom, he looked exhausted. At that moment, Goose Feather was Dale's only restaurant. He put a lot into getting it open that past summer. That first week of March, it was like, whoa, dude, like, what is up with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Thursdays would pick up. Fridays were strong. Saturdays still strong. Sundays were starting to build back up. And then the second week of March, you really were like, whoa. You started to hear the grumblings, right? And then March 13th was like D-Day. That was like that Friday, I believe. Hey, what's going on? This is Jerry from the North End Tavern. I just want to say we all open for lunch. We all open up for dinner. Uh, last night was a great vibe in here. Uh, just want to say thank you to our loyal customers. You know, that you guys really uh, made our night. It was beautiful just to see this place packed. Good vibe. All right, so come on in. North End Tavern. Check it out. Friday was a strong Friday. And Saturday, it just fell off the cliff. And then Sunday was terrible. Terrible. And then at that point, kind of all looked at each other and was like, wow, this is serious. This is going to be bad. Because, I mean... At the rate everything was, people were catching it, people were getting this virus, it was just doubling every day, every day. And at that point, we knew we were in trouble. And at, when did you start feeling scared for your staff, for your customers, for, for yourself? When did, when did you start feeling fear? I mean, it was that Sunday. It was, it was basically that Saturday or Sunday. We were considered the neighborhood cheers, you know, as you'd stop off, grab a beer before you went home grab a burger, whatever. And uh, that stopped like that instantaneously. And it was an eye opener, you know? I mean, it was kind of scary. You know, listen, making money is great, but the health, not, not at the expense of our, our staff, us as owners, our staff as employees, you know? Stop. Or our customers. It's hard to run something like ice cream that gives people joy. And it is a really kids come in and they usually hug me and they're like, mom said I can have an ice cream. I did well on my math test. I didn't beat up my brother today. You, you have, it's a very, it's a very sweet relationship and it, it is, it's so difficult to run at such a distance. And I care about my customers and I sure as hell care about my staff and I worry for them. I worry for their safety. And right now I feel irresponsible shutting because I need to keep them on and I need financially to keep going. At the same time, I feel responsible staying open because what am I exposing people to? What's the real science behind any of this? What's the end game? So we went from thriving to almost a full stop and it wasn't like a gradual push. It was sudden and it doesn't give any good business owner enough time to 
plan. You don't have time to model out a risk analysis on a pandemic. I've done risk analysis on everything. Global pandemic was not on my top 10 risks. That week I was like, yo, this is happening. This is this is gonna happen. Um, they're shutting, we're, we're gonna get shut down. At least at some point we're gonna get shut down. So you, we started planning for like, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, and then nuclear warfare, like, you know, the button. Where are we right now? on that, that plan A, plan B to nuclear warfare, where are we? We're like, we are the stage right before hitting the new, the button. We're right, we're holding on by a thread, man. I mean, there's no, there's no way around it. I'm not gonna sugarcoat this and pretend like everything's great. We're holding on by a thread. My thanks to Dale Taldi, Ellen Sledge, Jerry DeJesus, Wilson Tang, and Chip Wade for taking the time to chat with me over the course of this past year. You'll hear more from them and others in future episodes. Before I get to my guest, shout out to our sponsor, eBay. Find the exact shoe you're looking for on eBay, the original sneaker marketplace. Go to ebay.com sneakers today. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. Okay, joining me now to not only look back at the past year, but to contextualize what we just heard is Helen Rosner, staff writer at The New Yorker. The majority of her work focusing on food and restaurants do not call her a critic. That is the worst thing you could do. She is not a restaurant critic, people. <laughs> <laughs> She's, she is, however, one of the best there is at writing about the food world. Helen, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. So here on Hot Takes on a Plate, I say that I explore the things that make us feel and how those feelings collide with food. And there was a lot we all felt this past year. But I feel like the prevailing thing we were feeling this time last year was confusion. Was it not? Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, like so many people, I have spent the last few weeks in a little bit of a time capsule of what was I doing on this day last year? What was I feeling? What did I think was happening? You know, I realized a a couple days ago that at this time last year, we didn't even have the phrase COVID-19. We were still calling this the novel coronavirus, right? And um, yeah, totally. And we were worried about sanitizing surfaces more than we were worried about aerosol you know, dispersal of the virus. It just our our understanding of what was happening was so fetal compared to to the understanding that we have now that it's almost hard to connect with my emotions from then. It's almost hard to connect with the the world that we lived in then because I feel like we've we've come so far, we've aged so much, the world has changed so dramatically. Well, and our opinions have hardened over time. You know, I feel like we've joined camps now in a lot of this stuff. And at the time, there were no camps. It was just, everybody was just trying to scramble and figure this out. And, you know, I think about, you know, when was that moment for me, like when it was like, oh shit, this is real. And I remember, I I said it in in the documentary portion of the podcast, I was in a crowded elementary school theater on the Thursday before the Monday when things got shut down with restaurants. 
And, you know, it was a third grade performance. So the, all the parents from the third grade, all the kids from the third grade in an auditorium. And we're all kind of looking at each other like, is this a good idea? But yet there we were. What was your oh shit moment? My oh shit moment came a, a little bit earlier than that. Um, in part, I think just because of my job as a as a writer and journalist, I um, in in the middle of February, in early February, I did an interview with a couple who run a YouTube channel, Chinese Cooking Demystified. They live in Shunda in China. And at the time, in this first or second week of February, um, you know, the coronavirus had already caused tremendous shutdowns in Wuhan, where, where the virus was first identified. But throughout China, especially in major cities, there was extraordinary lockdown. And Chris, one uh, one half of the couple behind this YouTube channel, is a prolific Reddit commenter. And he had written this phenomenally interesting post on the home cooking subreddit about his and his wife Stephanie's experiences cooking in lockdown and what it had made him understand about cooking as a practice. Um, and it was really interesting in part because of what was at the time, this sort of abstract, like catastrophe porn element for all of us reading it outside of China. You know, they were describing how they weren't allowed to leave their building except for certain, you know, once or twice a week that there were very few grocery stores available. Most of their grocery shopping was happening at a 7-Eleven. They were working through their stores of food and they had just happened to have a ton of, I think it was potatoes because they'd been shooting a video about making Szechuan style potatoes or whatever it was. Um, and I was really moved by this post. And I reached out to Chris and Stephanie and asked if they'd be up for an interview. And we had a, a really incredible conversation. I remember it was very late at night, my time in New York, because we wanted to accommodate the time difference. We were on Skype um, and they were telling me about their experiences. And and the real kind of oh shit moment for me happened in a, a beat that didn't make it into the final interview, which ran on NewYorker.com. Um, but Stephanie was telling me how what she really missed was fresh herbs and things like citruses and flourishes and those final touches that you put on a dish when you cook at home that kind of elevates it from an everyday boring meal to just like, oh no, this is great, right? And it it takes 10 seconds to chop up some cilantro and throw it on top. But if you don't have cilantro, the meal is different. And she said to me, listen, I don't know how hard it's going to hit you guys in the U.S. I don't know when it's coming, but you should grow your own herbs. You should get them right now. And I remember the next day I went out to a garden store not far from my apartment and I bought potted herbs and I bought a mini calamansi tree that was already fruiting. And I was thinking to myself, if we're going to be locked in our apartment for weeks and weeks at a time without being able to go out, at least I'm going to have some fresh citrus. At least I'm going to have these fresh herbs. And I sent texts and emails to all of my friends. I think I posted on social media. I was like, somebody told me like, you know, Stephanie and Chris from Chinese Cooking Demystified told me like, grow some herbs, grow your citrus trees. And I felt at the time, like I was being a little bit of a crazy person. I worried that I was having that histrionic kind of prepper experience of enjoying the planning of the catastrophe. Um, and in the end, of course, it turns out groceries, at least where I live here in New York City, groceries were not really ever difficult to get. There were a couple of moments of intense hysteria towards the beginning of, of the pandemic cycle, I guess. Yes, but for the totally. most part, things have pretty normalized. 
Um, but that was the moment where I was like, I have to grow my own stuff. Like the self-reliance here really, really hit me in, in early February. Well, that was the trippy part about all of it is that we had warning signs. We could see what was happening in other parts of the world before it came here, first with China. And then I remember Italy was a couple weeks ahead of us, if I'm not mistaken. But when it's not here, it's hard. It's, it doesn't feel tangible. It's like you see what can happen, but your brain doesn't want to, it just doesn't want to accept it. I wonder if that's an America thing. I wonder if that's exceptionalism, part of the, baby. Yeah, exactly. The American exceptionalism makes us exceptional. Like we're an exception from reality as well. What was your last restaurant meal before shutdown? I, my last restaurant meal before shutdown was really great. It was a, it was a double, um, it was a double meal. I had my friend Adalia Cole, who's a food writer and photographer in the Bay area had been in New York. Um, and we had plans to meet up for breakfast at Russ and daughter's cafe on the lower East side. And, um, it was a weekday. I think it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday and I could probably pull up the exact date, March 11th or 12th. It was, it was close to the day that I was doing that reporting that I was talking about where I was just wearing gloves. And, um, we met up for a late weekday breakfast at Russ and Daughter's Cafe and had this incredible spread of bagels and lox. And I remember she had never had sable before, which is my favorite of the Jewish smoked fish. And I insisted that we get it. And we had just such a phenomenally lovely meal together in this eerily empty city. Um, it was easy for us to get a table at, at the cafe. I don't know if you've ever been to the Russ and Daughters Cafe on the Lower East Side, but it's packed and they don't take reservations and you put in your name and you wait. And I remember we just walked right in and the weirdness was already very much in the air. It was all we could talk about. We hesitated before hugging hello. We did the, the elbow bump instead of, you know, um, and over our breakfast, we were talking about how in particular at the time and, and throughout the course of the last year, um, Asian neighborhoods had been really suffering. And, and even before the city officially shut down, foot traffic and, and business in Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens's Chinatowns had really plummeted um, because people had this extraordinary racist fear that the virus had been identified in China. So Chinese people were the carriers. Um, and the Lower East Side in Manhattan is right next to Chinatown. And we decided to walk over there and sort of scope out the scene, but also give some business to these restaurants and businesses that had just been deeply, deeply suffering. And um, so we walked over to Wu's Wonton King, which is one of my absolutely favorite restaurants in Chinatown. And we were so full from our huge breakfast, but we went in and we sat down and we ordered dumplings and a beautiful bowl of soup that we shared. And I could barely eat a bite, but I remember I got a roast duck to go, um, thinking to myself that, you know, there Wu's uh, along with being the wonton king, like it says on the door, is also just a, a phenomenal um they have like roast duck, roast pork, just in incredible meats that you can eat there or you can take to go. And um I was thinking to myself, you know, if this is my last meal, if this is like if I'm not gonna step into a restaurant again, at least I'm gonna have this roast duck that I can take home and eat for dinner and, you know, use the bones to make soup and and the restaurant was empty. Um, which on one hand maybe is not that weird considering it was probably eleven thirty AM on a weekday. But on the other hand, Wu's is one of the pillars of Chinatown. It's a relatively young restaurant as far as that neighborhood goes, but it, it was sort of an instant classic as soon as it opened and and 
Adalia and I were the only people dining in the dining room. The only other table was full of staffers having their staff meal and people were coming in and getting things to go, but it, it felt, it felt weird. The, the energy in the air felt scared and desperate. And it wasn't just that restaurant. It was everywhere. Um, and I remember walking to the subway afterwards and thinking to myself how much the city felt the way it feels at 5 a.m. It was yes, this very specific yes. feeling. Yes, you know, I remember that. There were a couple that. people. Oh, my gosh. I remember the, early, the, the you know, in later in March, I remember like I'd go for a walk at like eight o'clock at night in my neighborhood and it felt like four in the morning. Yeah, this this strange emptiness where I'm used to the feeling of emptiness. You know, if you live in New York City, people talk all the time about the energy and the bustle and the crowds. But if you've ever either stayed up too late or woken up too early, you know that the city can feel empty. So it wasn't unfamiliar. It was just the wrong. Wrong time. It was jarring. Sunlight. Yeah. And, you know, you it talked about the, the racism and xenophobia um, that, you know, Chinatown and China, Chinese Americans, Asian Americans were facing, you know, in the early days of this. And, um, you know, really one of the things that stuck out to me, I mean, we talked about it in the documentary, how, you know, the restaurant industry started to feel the effects of this in early March, I feel like where people slowly were like, is it safe to go out? But Chinatowns were feeling it much earlier than that. But the crazy thing is the, that the hate crimes are, are, are big thing right now against Asian Americans. That's, that's a story that that's, that's not going away. No, no, it's not going away at all. And, and, you know, I think it's been really devastating to see that even though we know now that this virus was not a conspiracy. I mean, we knew this probably the whole time, right? Like we know that the people who carry this virus carry it indiscriminately of their country of origin, their racial identity, who their parents are, what languages they speak. But there is such a childlike need that some people have to assign blame, right? To create an enemy. And it's heartbreaking. It's devastating. It's infuriating that this is still a thing that, that some people largely on the political right feel like they need to assign an ethnic identity to this virus that has been so devastating. And that then that manifests, of course it manifests in, in, people behaving horribly to other people. And it's, I don't know, it's horrifying. It's, it's disappointing and horrifying and unfortunately unsurprising given the political climate in America. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think about how COVID, you know, in this context and beyond it, it's polarized us when it could have been something that brought us together. It could have been a common fight, a com common enemy. Those early days, there was that shared uncertainty. And it's always kind of felt to me like this wasted opportunity. Like this could have been a uniter. It became more of a divider <laughs> once again. I think all the time about that, um, the the twist ending in, in Watchmen. So spoiler, if anybody listening hasn't read or seen uh, the original Watchmen comic where, you know, the supervillain has, it turns out, has decided to unite humanity by causing this tremendous disaster that will be attributed to aliens so that humanity could come together to fight a common enemy. And, you know, it's this like great, you know, moral 
ambiguity, whatever twist. But like, here we are, like the entire world fighting a common enemy. This is the closest thing we've got to an alien invasion, right? All humans together united against something that has no interest in anything except hurting humans. And instead of coming together, we have just been a polarized and factioned group of idiots. And, you know, our leaders at various levels have just dramatically failed us and, you know, looked out for the flow of capital and looked out for their own reelection and looked out for their, you know, demagoguery and polarizing rhetoric instead of actually enacting care for their citizens. Um, and I feel like, you know, I've, I've in, in various things that I've written and on social media and in conversations, I feel like one of the things that I've just, the drums that I've beaten over and over, and I'm not the only one who said this, is the only purpose of government is to take care of its citizens in a way that is greater than citizens' abilities to take care of themselves. And regardless of what your political belief is, whether you are a like hardline libertarian or you are a full-on tanky communist, that is at the core of your belief, right? Like, like the one purpose of government that the super hardline libertarians allow for is military. And like, that's not just because of a love of guns. It's because the idea of military is like, you need an organizing force. You need something to protect people in a way that people are individually greater, greater than our individual capacity to care for each other. And it's absolutely bonkers to me that there has been this abdication of the fundamental responsibility of government Regardless of what version of government you believe in, this is this is at the core of that function. No, absolutely. And, yeah. And, and it's manifested itself so dramatically in particular to bring it back, I guess, ostensibly to the topic we should be talking about so particularly in the world of restaurants and hospitality and restaurant workers who make up just a shocking proportion of the people who live in this country and who have received no special consideration, who in fact have been put arguably in one of the most dangerous positions of anybody throughout the course of the entire pandemic with almost no care, almost no regard from the people who are supposed to care about their lives. No, absolutely. I, I went into this documentary a year ago with the mindset, the premise that these restaurants, this industry, it was being faced with the ultimate lose-lose. You're either, you're risking your health, maybe your life, you know, to, to stay open or you're risking your financial extinction by possibly closing. Is that still where we are today? I think so. You know, I'm not a restaurateur. I don't own a restaurant, but I spend a lot of time talking to people who do. I spend a lot of time talking to people who work in restaurants or who have worked in restaurants and are now unemployed. And this refrain of, help is coming has really, I think, lost all meaning by this point. And, oh, it's Lord and, of the Flies. Everybody's on their own to figure this out. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think restaurants are still closing at extraordinary rates. Some are staying afloat. Some are so close to the finish line. Some people are in states that have reopened to full capacity and their business is doing great. Some people are in states that have reopened to full capacity and they have refused to reopen to full capacity out of concern for the safety of their workers and they're struggling. I mean, I, I think that the the climate that we're in right now from a business perspective is basically impossible to predict. I think that there are some restaurants that 
are prioritizing the safety of their employees who are still doing great, who might be doing better than they ever have because of some aspect of their pivot really resonating with people, you know, whether they've become grocery stores or liquor stores, which aren't restaurants. And so there's definitely a cost in sort of losing your original goal and, and moving to a different one. Um, and there are others who are prioritizing worker safety who are circling the drain or who have closed already. It's, um, you know, the restaurant industry has never been a surefire way to get rich, right? It's never been the most stable industry in the world. It's infamous for being probably one of the least stable. Um, but a situation like this one really heightens the contrast. Um, I think somebody very smart whose name I can't remember right now tweeted something a few months ago that really stuck with me, which is that the, the COVID-19 pandemic did not really create any new crises, except for the actual virus itself. It didn't create new social problems. It just hit fast forward oh, on yeah. problems totally. that we already had. It made things happen just at extraordinary speed. It really put a spotlight on everything. And so the instability and fundamental insecurity of restaurants as a business model, as an employment model, were just like, you know, sped up. It just, everything just happened much more rapidly. It revealed itself much more rapidly. Hopefully, in theory, that makes it more apparent to people like me who don't work in the restaurant industry, you know, folks who are consumers, who are diners, who maybe didn't concretely understand how precarious these operations are as businesses and as employers, how unstable it is as a form of employment for the workers. Maybe it gives you something more obvious and easy to see, but I don't know, like, is it worth it? Well, I think this goes back to what I said at the beginning about how while opinions on COVID have hardened and people have formed into camps, and well, whereas at the beginning there was a lot of confusion, I think you could also argue even today there's a lot of confusion because, you know, I think there are people who look at this and say, well, how could indoor dining be safe if the virus is airborne and you're in an enclosed space and whatnot? But if government officials are saying we're now open, I mean, as a as a citizen, it's very easy to say, oh, well, it has to be safe. The government sanctioned it. It's open. Yeah. I mean, that's the fallacy of incompetent government, right, is um, that when when our guidelines, the, when the guidelines that we receive are flawed, when they're driven by motivations and priorities that might not intersect with our own as individuals, where does that leave us? Right. Um, and that's, and th piece, but then it trickles yeah. down, right? Because then people go, well, the CDC says you need to do this, but why should I believe them? Right. Right. Exactly. It, it, there, you know, and this tremendous lack of centralized messaging that we experienced under the Trump administration just set us on a path to hell. It's, you know, we have uncountable hundreds of thousands of deaths and more to come. The businesses that have closed, the lives that have been horrifically disrupted, you know, none of this had to happen. I think that what we've seen across the world is that it was always going to hurt a little, but it didn't have to hurt quite this much. Um, no, it didn't. It didn't. It really didn't. It, Helen, it's a waste. What, what would you say is, are, are the best ways to support restaurants? Well, um, I think there are actually two halves to the support restaurants rallying cry. Um, 
I think to support restaurants as businesses and as anchors of our communities and neighborhoods, the best thing to do is to give them money. Um, and that can be ordering takeout or delivery. It can be ordering merch or gift cards. Um, if they do safe outdoor dining, I would encourage you to do that. If, you know, and by safe outdoor dining, I don't mean those like sheds where the tables are that are indoor dining tightly together that are basically indoor dining. Um, my personal rubric has been that I'm not comfortable receiving table service. Um, so I'm happy to go to a window or a counter and order and bring myself my own food, but I don't feel comfortable having a server have to interact with me multiple times, um, for their own safety. But, um, but I think everybody kind of has their own level of comfort there. Um, the other half of how can we help restaurants is how can we help restaurant workers? And because restaurants in New York, for example, but also throughout the country are not operating back at full capacity because so many restaurants have closed, there are tremendous numbers of restaurant workers, servers, cooks, bussers, delivery people, porters, truck drivers, all sorts of folks who remain out of work or who are not as fully employed as they had been. And I think that if you love restaurants and you want them to come back, you have to maintain the world around the actual restaurant is a business as well. So for that, you know, you can donate to um, mutual aid funds. You can donate to funds like the Restaurant Worker Community Fund here in New York, which I think has um, extensions throughout the country. Um, lots of restaurants at the beginning of COVID opened up GoFundMes and things like that to help support their staff. And it's worth revisiting some of those, both to see if they're still operating and also to kind of find out what employees might be in need of support. Um, you know, it's, there's, there's so many things that those of us who still have reliable incomes, that those of us who have had the luxury of largely staying home voluntarily can do to help keep the lights on for the people and the community anchors that we love. Absolutely. Well, Helen, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Make sure to read Helen in the New Yorker. Her work is fantastic. Thanks again. Thanks for having me, Rob. And before I leave you, I want to thank four individuals. Uh, I want to thank Grant Thonak, Carl Fernandez, Christian McLaren, and Pete Fiorillo. They are four gentlemen who worked with me on the TV show Restaurant Hunter, who have been co-producing the video documentary with me. The, the thing that started this whole podcast, this was this is a, a, a documentary that I'm working on with these gentlemen, uh, a, like a true TV streaming, whatever it's going to be documentary. And we wanted to get some of this stuff out there audio wise because, you know, documentaries, they take a while to make. Um, so I want to thank those guys uh, for everything that they've done to, to get this project off the ground. The next episode of 86th is going to come your way April 21st. We're trying to time these episodes with the events that happen. Uh, There's going to be four parts. The second part is adapt and pivot. Then there's going to be a part three, probably in June, about anger. And part four, late August, early September, about the time when restaurants in New York City were getting ready to reopen for indoor dining at limited capacity. So... 
Again, make sure to subscribe to Hot Takes on a Plate so you never miss an episode and you never miss an episode of 86 because, again, these are going to come out periodically. They'll just be like little little surprises for you here and there. So make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to rate the show five stars, of course, and share. Let your, your network know about Hot Takes on a Plate. You can follow me on social media at Rob Patron TV on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Hot Takes on a Plate is part of the Believe Podcast Network. Check them out at BLEAV.com. Until next time, I'm Rob Patron. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.